Waking by David White. Get up from your bed. Go out from your house. Follow the path you know so well. So well that you now see nothing and hear nothing unless something can cry loudly to you. And for you, it seems even then, no cry is louder than yours. And in your own darkness, cries have gone unheard as long as you can remember. These are hard paths we tread, but they are green and lined with leaf mold. And we must love their contours as we love the body branching with its veins and tunnels of dark earth. I know that sometimes your body is hard like a stone on a path that storms break over, embedded deeply into that something that you think is you. And you will not move while the voice all around tears the air and fills the sky with jagged light. But sometimes... Unaware those sounds seem to descend as if kneeling down into you and you listen strangely caught as the terrible voice moving closer halts and in the silence now arriving whispers, Get up. I depend on you utterly. Everything you need you had the moment before you were born. So I was, uh, as, I, as we were sitting in meditation, I uh, was just uh, reflecting on what we share in common. So often uh, our minds focus in on the differences, don't we? And that's how we discover our uniqueness, is through our individual differences. Uh, and we often promote those individual differences as what allows me to sort of rise up beyond uh, other people. But what's in spirituality, what is much more important and much more central to our discovery is what is commonly shared. Egoically, we love the differences. Egoically, we take great pride in our intelligence, perhaps our body build, perhaps our, our um, skills, our image. But that only carries us so far. And what we really need to discover is what is commonly shared, not just by uh, our species, but all life forms. And as we sit, if we aren't investing in the differences as they arise, like our individual thoughts and how important our life is, and continuing to play out the different possibilities our life could take in terms of thought as we sit, we come to stillness, don't we? We come to being quiet. And what happens is we find that 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 stillness is a little bit unsettling for us. It's uncomfortable in the sense that uh, egoically, we feel a little unformed within it. Non-distinct. And vague. Feel like you're melting back into it, right? Like I always, the picture that I always have is like a, a snow person. <laughs> <laughs> 
politically correct. <laughs> Melting in the sun, falling, you know, losing their distinction and coming back into the common quality of all snow, the liquidity of all snow. And the and how we build upon and form the unique features of our distinction is in the noise we offer ourselves. Not only within the comparison and judgments that we constantly render, but also in our internal monologue about how we're doing and who we are and what we're doing and on and on. It's the noise that defines us. It's the noise that defines us. And stillness does, doesn't provide definition. And without definition, uh, there can be uh, some sense that this isn't going the way I wanted it to go. Because many of us are on the spiritual journey for greater definition. And I ask you to look very, all of us, to look very honestly at our practice to see if we're on that particular journey. Because when I look at some of the ways that the spiritual journey unfolds, and I see, for instance, yoga practitioners distorting their body to such an extent that I can never do that. You know, I don't even, I mean, I pick up Yoga Magazine, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a dead failure at the cover. <laughs> I didn't even open the thing. <laughs> and many journeys have, have um, ability as their guideline. But how many of us find the authentic sense of what spiritual joining means, rejoining really, which is stillness. Stillness. Now, we are discussing the paramis and we're on wisdom. And wisdom, you might say, is perception from stillness. But we have to get the stillness in order to perceive. If we perceive through noise, all we are left with is the opinions that are derived from that noise. But when we get to a level of quietude in which our opinions no longer are the defining creative influence on what we see and what we perceive, then we perceive very differently. And that perception from quietude is wisdom. But the quiet mind is the unformed ego. And so we, you can see how much we have involved ourselves in keeping the noise going by what happens to us when we sit down and just look at our mind. We see nothing but noise. Everywhere we look is noise. That's our investment in being distinct and particular. Unique. And even though we may be practicing meditation, we may be practicing it from that distinctive quality, how well I'm doing within it, rather than from the common element to which it is to take us, which is the melting snow, not the crystallization of the ice person. And why would we want to do that? I mean, why would we ever want, what, what benefit does melting, I mean, it even sounds awful. <laughs> what, what benefit could that possibly give us to turn ourselves over and let ourselves melt, let ourselves become unformed, let ourselves become non-distinct? What benefit could that possibly be? From the sense, the egoic sense of each of us, it makes no sense whatsoever. And we ravagely fight that process. But as it happens, something very uh, awesome takes place. 
And that is we come in to the intelligence of presence. Now, each of us have our own intelligence. That's your intellectual ability to figure and do whatever it is, discern, know what's going on. But when we're quiet, that intelligence is no longer uh, involved. In quietude, we come out of ourselves and into the intelligence of presence. (coughs) Wisdom is understanding that the perceptions from the intelligence of presence reveals the secrets of the universe. Each of our individual intelligences, that's the word, are the secrets to our uniqueness and our advantage because they contain the knowledge that we think is so particular to ourselves in which we embellish to have some sense of ourselves in comparison to others. But there is an intelligence that is within presence. And as we begin to experience that, just by being quiet, by willing, allowing ourselves to be quiet, rather than infusing our consciousness with constant jabber, we can look out, not we, but presence looks out and sees a very different configuration of the world, sees a very different world view and has a very different orientation than from our individuated intelligence. Because noise, the noise we make, filters the wisdom of presence. Does it not? When we are noisy, the intelligence of presence can't get through. It can't perceive. It it keeps getting deflected by what we're saying about something. We're not seeing it exactly. We're not seeing it to be true representation. By being quiet, we can see what is truly represented in that moment. But when we make noise, that the intelligence that would like to perceive gets distorted by the words we use to define what it is that we're looking. And therefore, that wisdom has no access through the noise that we speak. Now we begin to see why it is that we sit and not add anything to our meditation. We're not trying to create more noise within our meditation. We're trying to eliminate noise. And the strategies we use must be very carefully selected so that they don't come back and create more ruckus, more diversion of attention from the innate intelligence that's there. It's very important to understand that each of us share in common that innate presence. We all innate intrinsically have that at the center of our being. And around our being we place a lot of noise. And all spirituality is, is to come back to that centered location through the noise that we have created. And the noise creates our drama, it creates our Narrative, it creates our journey, it defines all that we have done, it defines our life, it defines each other, it defines the world in terms of how we know it to be. And so, how we know it to be is by our individuated difference. What does it look like from our innate intelligence, the intelligence of presence? Well, we have to be quiet to find out. We have to 
be willing to surrender our distinction in order to discover fulfillment, contentment. Because it can't be found within the noise of our individual differences. We've tried that. We've tried that. That's what brings us here together. That's what has us grouped together. And we've tried to do it from an individual perspective, from our individual intelligence, from our knowledge base, from our intellect. And most of our lives have felt unsatisfactory because we have played out that dimension of ourselves to the point where noise-making is not fulfilling any longer. And so we seek a new dimension, but many of us don't know how to do it except by making more noise in ourselves. Because that's been the form that we have used for self-expression, for self-uniqueness, to find and discover and excite and intensify a situation, we just make more noise. We add a new dimension of noise to it. And there's a maturity level in which we have to decide, okay, you know, it's not working. It just isn't working. And we begin to seek wisdom at its source. Now, we have to be careful because there's a conniving sense of ego that wants to maintain itself, so to speak, have its cake and eat it too, maintain itself while it's on its spiritual journey. Find all the spiritual treasures from its own individuation. Yeah. Can't be done. And if our image, we want to promote our image, we want to promote our, you know, how good of a sitter we are and how dedicated we are and all of the different ways that we can keep intoning our, through spiritual language, we're no better off than if we are on a worldly pursuit. No better off. So let's call it what it is together. See, it's very humbling to do this thing. very humbling. It takes us back to a, to, a, to a moment of creation in which we were all together. Back in the Big Bang time when everything was nothing and lived happily thereafter until the noise of the bang sent us our separate ways and we have been echoing that bang ever since. And so when we're looking at wisdom, we're looking at the guidance system for knowing the safety of stillness. Because what wisdom offers the ego is assurance that stillness is safe. There's no other way. You can't, we cannot talk our way into stillness. I hope you see the irony of that statement. We can't prepare ourselves to be still by talking ourselves into it like we're going into the ball game, you know, playing the, you can do a good job, you'll hit a home run, go on there. You can't do that with this practice. You can just be quiet. That's all we can do. And what most of us would like to do is to be able to discover wisdom rather than to become wise. Because when we discover wisdom, we can kind of keep our place and have something, have wisdom as a product, a commodity. I'm wise, right? But I'm wise is an oxymoron. (laughs) 
So it absolutely, wisdom requires humility. I mean, there's no other way. There's no other way. Now, there can be people, you see, what happens is that we can have insights and then our mind catches hold of this wonderful discovery we just made about ourselves or the world. And then the self can get hold of that and make it a knowledge base. All things are impermanent. That t- this too shall pass. Now you're profound, aren't you? People will journey and pilgrim, pilgrim up to St. Mark's to hear you. <laughs> But speaking from wisdom, being wise, abiding in wisdom, is not speaking profoundly. It's just speaking from what we see in the moment of seeing. And we don't get anything out of it. We don't even get a sense that we're wise. We're kind of left out in the cold on this one. <laughs> All we get is the orientation of wisdom and a deeper sense of relaxation into life, which is where wisdom, abiding in wisdom, pulls us because it keeps telling us that life is safe. Do you realize that? And we keep fighting that safety factor. And wisdom keeps showing us the course of faith. It keeps encouraging us, not towards our intellectual understanding, but towards surrender, towards releasing our resistance. It doesn't offer something. If you release your resistance then... Because it can't, nothing, nothing is guaranteed on this journey. Except presence. And then you may abide fully in presence and all hell break loose. It won't stop a Seattle earthquake from happening. <clears throat> it won't keep your spouse from dying or it won't keep you from dying. It won't keep your body from aging won't do any of those things. All of that will continue to move in whatever laws govern that. But it will keep you free within that movement because when we are focused on the distinction, we are focused on the form and solidity and continuation of that form and solidity for our survival. But when we're based in stillness, the forms continue to evolve and move, but they don't affect. We remain, the sense, the universal sense of self is unperturbed. The awareness is unperturbed. Forget all that universal sense of self. The awareness, the presence is unperturbed. So the, 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 what wisdom does is allow the ego encouragement to surrender. That's its value. But what we, where we get arrested, and this is such an important point, and we, I'm not following my notes, so I'm going to be... I'm going to, at some point I'm going to wish I had. (laughs) I I can feel it back there. You see, insight is the beginning of wisdom. 
It's the fir- it's the opening. And it's joyful to have a moment of insight. It's startling. It's like, wow, look at that. It's as if you're a secret of the universe is being revealed to you or or configuration of how you've been holding yourself or doing something to yourself. And there can be psychological insights and spiritual insights and on and on. But it's just only the first step. And what we do so often in this practice is to arrest that first step as sufficient. Having the insight is sufficient. And one of the, I know a lot of people who can speak very wisely about all the insights he or she has had. And they have organized their cosmology according to those insights. But what is more rare is the living of them. Because the actions get arrested because that's where we meet the aversion of what the insight means in terms of our continuation as being distinct and unique. See, the insight may show you that all things are impermanent. And we may hold that as a basis of knowledge and stand by the river, watching the river flow and say, all things are are impermanent, are in transition, are in movement. But we're very safe on the bank looking at the river, aren't we? That's having an insight, but not abiding within it. What's it look like when we throw ourselves into the river? That requires us going against deeply entrenched conditioning within us. And that's where the resistance comes in most people's spiritual practice. Not at the level of insight. At a level of insight, with, with a maturing practice, and please, don't hold judgment as to whether you fit the definition of maturing with what am I just about ready to say. Okay? <laughs> with someone who has, with sincerity, practiced over some period of time, the mind usually gets quieter. And so there are more, there's more access to the wonders and mysteries of, of presence, the intelligence of presence, or perceptions of wisdom from stillness. And there can be a growing sense of us knowing what the world and the profound quality of the Dharma and the love of the Dharma and a kind of... But a a growing sense, there can be, this is not always the case, of an isolation, but a a grand, sort of a self-aggrandizement within that, of us knowing, I knowing, but others not. Hmm? I know. And other people are acting from their ignorance. But I know the truth. Which can be another form of distinction, another form of layer of noise, and another emphasis on individuation. And what limits that person who may be very sincere from actually taking the next step is that when we are willing to take that next step into action and really surrender to the movement of life as a verb, all of our resistances to being a verb and not a noun, if you can follow that, arises. It didn't arise at the insight. The insight was lovely. In fact, it gave me more uniqueness. But at the moment in which I have to convert that insight 
into an integrated action, I freeze because my life is on the line. The life that I have known is on the line. Now, if that hasn't happened to you, it will. And if we're honest, we go, my God, I'm not willing to move. I'm not willing to do this. I'm not willing to give myself over. And we may just arrest that and keep having insights because they'll continue to come because we have learned how to base ourselves in quietude. But there's an arrest there. You see, wise action means far more than what we have taken it to be. Wise action is moving in accordance to that insight. It's the surrender into action. But the mind recoils in terror in doing so because it's like we're putting all of our chips, our poker chips, into the center of the table and betting on them. And because we have not actualized in action those insights, doubt still arises. And we may have doubt in the Dharma. What if it's wrong? Even though I've had all these insights, maybe I'm fooling myself. And I don't want to look like a fool. I don't want to look like a fool out here all by myself. Nobody else is doing this. So I'll stay very neatly tucked in my wisdom. Isn't this fun? <laughs> it is fun to look at all the ways we hide. You got, we have to be willing to, you know, to sort of call ourselves out on these things. And enjoy, enjoy the process of self-discovery. And oh my God, I've been nailed. Okay, so let me see. What does that mean now? You see, what does it mean? Let's, you know, we're not creating, I'm not sitting up here judging anyone who's not. It's, okay, let's look. Now, what can we do here? What, how can we create an environment for wisdom to be integrated, not just known? Right? Well, each of us are in the exact position in order to do that. If you are harbored away in a monastery or on retreat, which at certain times and phases in one's practice history is a very good thing. But for some people, we don't have access to that. Now, what life in its dynamic form, called daily life, holds is the ability to constantly be up against what your wisdom and your willingness to move in that direction. You can feel... you. Right? When we get enraged and angry and we know better in ourselves because we've seen the nature of anger and we're not being accountable for our anger, we're blaming. We know that. It's right. The wisdom is there. But the willingness to release ourselves from the seductive quality of anger, we're just not going to do it. We're not going to make take that step. We're not going to do it. We're going to... At some later time, we're going to say, well, I failed a little bit there. I wasn't quite up to my task. And again and again and again it will happen. And, but we love the fact, we just love that sense of being a master <coughs> within our anger. Because anger gives us mastery. Yeah? In righteousness. You know better. Is there, there's no, everyone in this room knows better than that. You've had wisdom. You've had insight into the nature of anger. You know that it's not caused by someone. But that doesn't keep us in the moment from blaming that someone. Even though, so we're not willing. We're not willing to step into the wisdom at that moment. We're not willing to cha- challenge the conditioned influence which wisdom always requires. See, there's a backlash to this thing. 
Spirituality isn't just like a bowling ball down an alley. This is, this is, there are obstacles here that have me hesitate. Do I want to give up my power? Do I want to give up the sense of who I am? Do I want to be diminished in my authority? Do I want people to look at me as being less than I want my image to radiate? All of those are very deeply held and central beliefs in all of us. And yet wisdom will constantly challenge us towards that end because it's asking us to surrender our distinction. So how many of you are willing to be spiritual and not act spiritual? And you know what? The person next to you will never know. You can get away with what you're doing now and fool us all. I don't know. I don't know what's going on inside of you. You see, it's a, it's a secret lab. <laughs> and each of us, see, no one's pushing us. That's the thing. No one's pushing us. No one's prodding us forward. No one's forcing us. We can stay as long as we like and whatever contained contained behavior we have, you can, we can stay for eons. Nobody will ever, ever, or can ever force you out of that particular. It's just not, growth is not induced from the outside. That's as simple as that. We have to be fed up with it in ourselves. What allows us to be fed up so that we will move into wisdom rather than being wise? That's the question. There's a kind of... When we realize that the pain we generate isn't worth the payoff we feel we get from it, then there's a sobriety of view and a willing to risk. And perhaps it's only that. Only that. I can also say, from my point of view, it's aging too. Because you see the time's running out and the decades we thought or projected ahead of us aren't there anymore. And so we think, well, you know, I always thought I could do it when I was 60, but now I'm 60. So now what? When do I do it now? And I don't care if you're 40s or 30s. Are we committed to seeing what is true in us? Or are we still interested in deflecting that truth and the light so that we see a partial truth. So that we can kind of maneuver individually within this great dynamic, not give ourselves over to the dynamic itself. It really only has to do with the perception of what is true and the willingness to live in accordance to what is true. And the quieter we become, the less defensive we are. The less our defenses arise. The less our defenses arise, the more the truth is known. The more the truth is known will put you into that awkward place of whether you're going to abide and act from that truth or whether we're, we're going to recoil in fear. And that's truth of body, speech, and mind.
And we begin to see how all of these paramis support the other. Because the parami of renunciation, which is releasing what is false, is the very act of quieting. The very act of quieting, of renouncing life, of coming to a simpler and more fundamental relationship to life, the more we see what is true and perceive what is false. And the more we're willing to surrender, releasing what is false and to surrender to the truth. And that's the guidance system. That's the honing, that hones us in. That and a love, not only for what is true, but for presence itself. Just a love for it. For what it does to us. And I don't mean that as an egoic sense of us, but what it does in our aliveness, in our vitality, in our clarity, in our understanding, in our caring, in our compassion, in our willingness to involve ourselves. And that love of presence can only be understood from being in presence. Not from trying to talk yourself into being present. And in those moments of stillness when our guard is down and we feel the vitality of spirit and to know that the quieter we become, the more vital we become. the less individuated life is and the more heart-pronounced and the willingness to care deeply from that sense of presence so that we don't bypass or whitewash anything. Everything has an unmistakable imprint upon us. See, are we willing to do that level? You can see what we get out of busyness. You can see what we get out of staying busy because we don't have to care when we're busy. Many people care from their anger. They care from their frustration. They care from how life is so up so unfair to certain populations and that anger drives their what they perceive as their caring that's not caring that's anger caring looks very different Caring is caring, not pity. And all of this rests upon a pronounced attitude that drives wisdom. And that attitude is come what may. I am not going to be stuck within my conditioned fear response held in place by my resistance to moving into what I know is true. And even though my mind keeps recoiling with contingencies of what will happen if I do do that and all of this fear scenario I don't care anymore. I've listened to that too long. For too long we have been embedded within the details of fear. And it's time to step out. 
And I don't know what that first step even looks like because it's taken on faith, not on knowledge. And I'll step out and if I make a fool and somebody from the sky opens up, the sky, the clouds part, somebody says, ha, 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 fooled you. There isn't any Dharma. (laughs) It's like, oh, well, that that won't happen. (laughs) So we're meeting, you see. We're meeting together to encourage that. Sometimes you need to see someone else step. And you go, okay, well. But ultimately it comes down to our willingness to dissolve. (laughs) And before you dissolve, it's very difficult because you don't see the value of dissolving. You see its limitation. You see what you're not going to have. But a new dimension never shows you what it holds until you get into the new dimension. And then it becomes obvious. So take the risk. Let us take the risk together. And not hold ourselves back any longer. Thank you all. Can we sit for a minute or two? So as we sit in this brief interlude, how invested are we in the noise that we're making? Let us not pretend we aren't making noise. That's the first honest acknowledgement. How important is the noise to us in this moment? How much does it determine our next action, our next perception? And are we willing to abide with what holds the noise? Because awareness, presence, has the quality of knowing, of hearing, of seeing, of knowing the sound is arising, of knowing the sights occurring but it's not invested in the form of the sight or the sound of the hearing. Do you see The difference between an orientation of your meditation towards what we have in common or an orientation in our meditation towards what we have in terms of differences. No one shares the same noise as you do. If you invest in that, you will have your individual uniqueness, I promise you. If you share or partake or abide in that which holds the noise, you will not own your uniqueness, but you will erupt within it. 
You'll be unique either way. You just won't be able to own it as your own. So if there are any questions or comments this evening, I'd be happy to respond if I can. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. <clears throat> uh, so the question has to do with the metaphor of the river and he felt it, it's a very daunting uh, metaphor in the sense that to stick your toe in and have a very fast running stream feels very threatening and that, that may be in his hope is that the w- river widens and slows its pace. Uh, I can't promise you the safety of a slow current, nor should I. Uh, because uh, the only reason uh, that you would know that however, how fast the current was moving is if you were outside it. See, once we allow an abiding presence in transition, in flux and change, in impermanence. You have cast aside any reservations about it. You're no longer resisting the movement of the flow, no matter how fast the flow might be going. And sometimes, as we know in our life, the flow is pretty paced, isn't it? And sometimes it's very settled. But as soon as we, and I'm just, as soon as we noun ourselves, then we're stuck in the river floating. Worrying about where the river is going to go. Worrying about the damage it's going to create. Worrying about the falls that are up ahead. Right? We have all sense of context. We place a sense of context. Where we've come from, God, the rapids that we just went through, that's a floating body. That's not a floating river. The river doesn't do that. It just moves. And that's called faith. It's not faith in something. It's not faith in God will protect me. It's seeing that proclaiming ourselves to be a noun is simply a false assumption. Now, what's left when you see that? When you see that claiming ourselves to be permanent, unstoppable, intransient, a noun of life, is false. Now, every one of us has that sense. If you've been practicing more than a few weeks, There's nothing, wherever your mind alights, it's hidden movement. There's nothing internally or externally that is frozen for all time. Nothing. So where do we hold ourselves as if we were? Where do we create the sense that we were? We create it from looking out through memory because memory provides us a fixed location of what I remember about this. It provides us a tether to stability, doesn't it? In time. Well, you've changed a little, but you're still the same person. You've just gotten older. So I'll hold on to you being the person I knew three years ago. Never allowing you to move to be a different person Because you're a completely different person than I knew three. But it's just your body that's changed. Or maybe some mannerisms. Or maybe you've gotten a little bit cynical. (laughs) And a little more angry. But I can deal with that. You're still Bob. Right? (laughs) And I'm still Rodney. 
And together we can have a conversation as long as we know each other from our past. See, everything is like that, isn't it? It's not just that. It's everything. We don't have to show up for the other person either because we already know them. I've known you for 20 years and even though it's been 10 since I've seen you, still I know you. And what did you say? Okay, same thing. <laughs> See, yeah, we can do it, you know. Then we never have to show up. But when everything is a verb, it is in, in mix, in flow. Well, we have to show up for that. First, if we don't show up, we're making everything a noun. We're just turning away from it. And when you turn away from something, you're fixing something. So in order for us to just to follow through with this metaphor, to make everything a verb requires an ongoing participation with that thing. With the moment. And an ongoing participation requires showing up for it. So part of the dynamics of wisdom is the willingness to show up. So I'm not saying anything radically new, really. Sure, yes. She said, she said um, when I speak about stillness and being quiet, she takes it very literally and tries to then manufacture a quieter environment by turning off the television or the radio so that everything settles down a little bit. And that can be helpful because to be stimulated by those things. I mean, I, one of the... Uh, homework assignments I give beginning students is to take a news fast so that people get a feeling for what the input does to their own inward noise and how much of that is induced from the outside as a problem that I have to, you know, oh my God, well, Barack's health care plan, you know, all of that. And we can worry ourselves insanely with that. Um, and so there is a natural, and it has to be natural, movement towards simplicity, renunciation, the releasing of higher and greater intensity of life. Uh, and we find, actually, that there's an enormous amount of enjoyment and appreciation that comes from the lessening of that intensity, where we thought the appreciation and joy came from greater intensity, we now start appreciating sunsets instead of the next album that X, Y, and Z. And we also start appreciating uh, graciously not moving rather than what the products of busyness provide. So you begin to feel the value of the immediate contact of life. And rather than kind of the entertaining quality of a passing relationship with life. And a deepening involvement of the heart's relationship within that context. So those are all uh, parts of the renunciation of the, just the spirit of a gradual simplicity that comes very naturally. Just loving quiet, just loving space, loving, you know... You, as you begin to embody those things, you begin to love them. But the real journey of stillness is not creating a, a counter-opposition to noise. It's in stepping out of noise into the awareness that holds the noise rather than focused on the noise. As When you realize that the noise doesn't offer you much, Awareness relaxes its investment within noise. And noise happens. Thoughts occur. But they don't confiscate the attention or direct the intention. They inform the attention. So a thought informs one's life. I need to get back home and know how I, to do that. 
but it doesn't direct, I have to get back home and I have to do it now and how much time we got in it, it doesn't produce an anxiety relationship with it. So how do we get to that place? You get to that place by seeing the suffering within noise. And then there's the release or relaxation around noise. The more you experience the burdensome act of thinking and the untruth that lie within the thoughts themselves, the incomplete picture, the perspective, the prejudice, the projection, the less you weigh in with thoughts as being true, the more quiet you are with your thoughts. So we haven't tried to get overthinking because that's another reaction or more noise to thought. But rather a relaxing within the thought itself so that there now is space. Rather, when the, before there was such an investment in the thought as being true that my whole life was lived through that thought. Now as I begin to perceive it as being only a partial truth at best and an illegitimate representation of life, I relax with it. So it's happening. So what? It doesn't have to call me forth. It's like playing wolf. It's done it too long. It's not going to respond to that anymore. And then there's space around it. That space is awareness, holding it. And when you feel that space, then no longer are you driven by thought. That's the quietude. The space holds the quietude. That which knows the thought rather than is directed by the thought, invested in the thought. That's the quietude. And that will happen. That will happen on its own. If you're diligent. Last week, we did a diet on wisdom. And we said... What would I be without this thought, basically? I can't remember exactly what the dyad was, but something like that. And some of you afterwards came up and said to me that you could see what the possibilities were if you didn't keep thinking, if you didn't force yourself into the content and story but that the quiet didn't hold any assurance or validation of you. So that it felt more scary to step out of the noise than to remain in it. Well, that's the dilemma I'm trying to speak to tonight, which is fair enough. You just, over time, will get more and more sick of the noise so that there's nothing else you can do. And that opening that spaciousness will be there to catch you in safety, in safety. Anyone else? I'm going to stop you there. She's saying that... um, if it feels terrifying, it feels like death, it feels, you know, it's not like that. Now let's just get over that one, you know, <laughs> because you can keep scaring everybody in the room. Oh my God, it is terrible. Oh, it is terrifying. It does feel like, oh, it is terrifying like death. Oh my God, it is death. Death of me, I'm going to die. It's not like that. Fear, that's a big lie. Period. Period. It's a big lie. But the more we incite that lie, other people pick it up. It's contagious. Oh God, I've got. Am I have feeling the terror he talked about? You know that's nonsense. There may be some reservations about it because you haven't tried it. It's no more difficult. In fact, it's much easier to try, like trying a new food. Didn't like it. Okay, that's it. You can go back to being noisy if you want to. But most people like it. (laughs) Ask around. Most people like it. And they don't call it a death. They call it, oh, that's a great diet I'm now on. Okay? 
So let's not scare ourselves further into the corner of this thing. Okay, we can do this, and we can do it together. Let's just do it. Okay, that's enough for the night. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.